Chapter 10 of The Cliff Dwellers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dwarika. The Cliff Dweller by Henry Black Fuller. Chapter 10. Ogden and his mother were now beginning to have frequent conferences with regard to the management of the property and to McDougall's connection with the matter. Perhaps the word conference puts, however, too set and a formal a stamp on the brief haphazard interchanges of ideas that took place as chance permitted within McDougall's own house a few words after a Sunday dinner or at the front door late at night. And besides being handicapped as to occasion, they were further hampered by McDougall's new relation to them and by their own presence under his roof. Besides, Mrs. Ogden, with a multitude of small experiences, had no ability for grasping things in a large and general way, while George, with a broader and more comprehensive outlook, was embarrassed by a lack of experience in the actual details of a business transactions. Added to this, he was a newcomer. Under all a newcomer's disadvantages, he hardly knew where to turn for the proper agents, legal or financial, that might have been employed. While many of the agencies in courts, for instance, were different in procedure and even in a name from anything he had known East. All the same, though, he said to his mother, things ought to be in a different shape for you. I'm bound hand and foot in that bank. No time or thought for anything outside. I don't know, but what you had better put everything with some good real estate firm and let them look after repairs and collections and taxes. His mother fixed a pair of anxious eyes upon him and the wrinkles of her perplexity appeared on her forehead. Eugen is real estate. All those lawyers, he went on. Anyway, you ought to have an account as administratrix with some bank. I believe I'll open one tomorrow. Something has got to be done to make things quicker and clearer. He presently took upon himself the delicate task of intimating to MacDowell that a simpler and more regular way of doing things was desired. He went up to MacDowell's office in the later part of the afternoon. As he entered, a tall, dark man was standing in the middle of the room. There was a sinister look in his eyes and a contemptuously sarcastic smile on his heavy red lips. He gave a last fall to a small piece of paper that he held in his hands and thrust it into his vest pocket. It was wider. It's pretty near four now, he was saying to MacDonald. So I can't try again today, but I expect to find this all right after 10 tomorrow morning. He gave his hand a hearted flip across one side of her fist dark moustache and passed out. MacDonald looked after him sorely. Damn the brute, he muttered. As Wybet's word implied, he had been in MacDonald's office once before on the same day. His salary at St. Asif now meant more to him than it had meant a month ago, and he had called with a reference to it and to the delay in his payment. Hitherto, the financial arrangements of the church had gone on with the same precision as its anthems and its processionals. In the present condition of things, delay to Vibrate were more than a surprise, 
more than an embarrassment, it was an exasperation. I don't sing for glory, he had declared with an offensive briskness. It's the here and not the hereafter that I'm busy with. MacDowell looked at him uneasily. I'm going to fix up all the salaries next week in one batch. I don't see why any particular man should be favored. Favored, repeated Wybert with a loud insolence. I should say not. I don't feel favored in running my legs off for money three weeks overdue. We can't live on air. We have bills to pay. We ain't singing for the pleasure of it. MacDowell contracted his eyes to a critical narrowness. You may not be singing much longer for anything else either. That's another matter. It isn't you that put the coil together. MacDowell tapped his fingers on the yellow varnish of his desk. I don't know about that. From what I hear, you are not making the sort of record for yourself that's useful in a church. My private life is nobody's business. I sing. I'm worth the money. That may work on the stage. It won't work quite so close to the pulpit. Come, now, I know a little something of your daily doings. Plenty of men sing who don't hang around wreck tracks and loaves in pool rooms. And from what I hear, you're helping that young grainer along at a good gate too. You'd better wait along with the others. Waitings may hang. I'm here for money, money that's mine. If I can't work it with a man who pays out the loaves and fishes, I'll try one of the men that contributes them in the first place. He tossed his head insultingly towards the door that led to Ingle's office. MacDowell's elbow rested on the edge of his desk, his thumb on the tip of his ear and his middle finger rubbing his father's eyebrow as he looked out steadily on the wyvern from under his hand. Joseph, he called to his clerk, bring me that checkbook. The man opened a lower drawer and brought out a book whose covers enclosed a number of stubs and three or four banks checks. MacDonald wrote and passed the check to Wybert, who went out with no further words on either side. MacDonald did some figuring and saw some people, and somewhat later Wybert returned. He threw his check on MacDonald's desk contemptuously. That's no good. How's that? No account with him. No Oh, I see. I, we have changed banks and I forgot to change the name in the check. He picked up a ruler and drew the red ink bottle a little nearer. I'll fix it. Sorry to have troubled you. We want to look out for this, Joseph. Wybert withdrew, speaking the words that Ogden had heard on his entrance, words that would have been the reverse of assuring if he had fully understood them. Bad egg, said Mandel to him, wagging his head in the direction of just closed door. George looked at him studiously. He appeared to be in a state of extreme nervous irritation. His wiry moustache moved up and down stiffly as he felt about with his teeth for the inner membrane of his lips. His long, lean fingers were interlaced and a clicking sound came from his snapping his fingernails together. It was clearly no occasion for more than a partial statement of Ogden's matter, and this was the most that he permitted himself. But MacDowell was in the sensitive state of mind when one word does the work of three, and in the irritable state of mind when talk is such a relief that three words 
in Book 30 in reply. He made George believe and modest suggestion with a hitching of his shoulders and answered them in a harsh and strident tone. The first thing in doing business, he said, is to have an office to do it in. He looked about his own, his desk, his cashier's window, his letterpress, and the second is to know how to do it. He looked out of the window in a wholly impersonal way, but his words had a more personal slang than he would have given them at almost any other time. God knows I've got enough to do already, but Kitty's affairs are mine. She has equal interests with the others, and she seems to feel that I am able and willing to look after them. He spoke with some show of reason, and George was obliged so to conceive. There's taxes, for one thing, or take special assessment alone. There's taxes, for one thing, or take special assessments alone. They are almost a business by themselves. Say you got 10 acres or so just beyond the limit. Some fine day it will $600 or more for a half a mile of sidewalk, a sidewalk that won't be walked on by seven people a week. What's the reason? Oh, some one of those township politicians or other has got a friend that's a carpenter. Now, who's going to tackle the wards and starve off such things? George looked at him silently. There's tax sales. I guess you never went to one of them. You'd strike a bloodthirsty crew if you did. Supposing you got a mortgage and the mortgager don't come to time with his taxes, you've got to buy them up to protect yourself. And you've got to get there first. Last year I fought this point for a week with one of those tech sharks. And so it goes. Real estate is no kindergarten business, I can tell you. The truth of this view was becoming more and more apparent to Ogden. He withdrew after some further parlings in a confusing and inconclusive state of mind, well convinced, however, of Magdal's abilities and more fully conscious of Magdal's position as the husband of his father's daughter. Never did the town of his adoption seem less, indeed, like a kindergarten, than when he took his way northward to dinner or when, later in the early evening, he made his way over to the west side to call at the Brainerds. The thousands of acres of a ramshackle that made up the bulk of the city, and the tens of thousands of a raw and ugly and half-built prairie that composed its environs, seemed together to constitute a great checkerboard over whose squares of the section and township keenness and rapacity played their daring and wary game. And through the middle of the board ran a line, a hinge, a crack, the same line that loomed up in at those various deeds and abstracts of his with the pretentiousness and inescapability of the equator. And through the middle of the board ran a line, a hinge, a crack, the same line that loomed up in at those various deeds and abstracts of his with the pretentiousness and inescapability of the equator, the line of a third principal meridian. The Brainerd house reared itself in the same frivolous ugliness that we have already viewed. But an excess of light came through the front parlor windows, and Ogden was prepared to find that at least four of the eight burners in the brick chandeliers were lightened. This turned out to be the case. It was at 
as great a tribute as the family ordinarily paid to society. The family he found represented by Brainerd, his wife, and his elder daughter. Society was present in the shape of a young couple who were called Mr. and Mrs. Valentine. The elder daughter received him with a quiet and simple cordiality. He could not help looking about furtively for the possible presence of the younger. He had not remained ignorant of a half-hour wait in a cab outside the bank, but he might have surmised the inflexibility of her father's will. The old man had refused to see her or to let her see him. The most that he would yield was a species of non-committal communication through Bert. Mrs. Brenner presented herself to Ogden as a peculiarly faded and ineffective person. It was easy enough to grant her an abysmal incapacity. Her husband, in fact, had fallen upon her, crushed her, absorbed her as a heavy blotting pad falls on the page of light and delicate writing. Except for one thing, she had no aim, no occupation, no diversion beyond her ills and remedies. This was a penchant for chess. To those who object that chess is an intellectual game, one may simply put the question, have you ever seen it taken up by an elderly, invalidated female who has rested content with the mere learning of the moves? It was thus with Mrs. Brainerd. She played a good many games with herself every day, and they really soothed and rested her. On the social board, however, she had hardly learned the first opening, and the entertainment of a brilliant young couple now in her house fell almost altogether on Abby, for the girl's mother sank back into a passive silence while her father tore through the rooms occasionally and threw out remarks, more or less apropos, in a gruff and abrupt fashion peculiar to himself. His manner with young men had simply closed the house to them. To him, it was an inexplicable and harassing thing that a young fellow of a 25 should not possess the capacity, experience, and accumulation of a man of a 35 or 40. He regarded every intruder in the light of a potential son-in-law, and no more potential than undesirable. Most of these scholars would gulp down once with such smile as they could master the old man's abrupt ways and disconcerting comments then they got out of the house in good order and never came back. However, at the present juncture, he did not appear to resent Ogden's appearance, notwithstanding the young man's share in the episode at the bank. Perhaps he looked upon him as a serviceable prop in another bad quarter of an hour. Yes, Mr. Brenner, Mrs. Valentine was saying as George entered, it's just as I have been telling Abby, you ought to move over on the north side too. Rainer happened to be passing through the room. It had occurred to him that he might turn down one of the side burners in the back parlor. Um, no, he said in an offhand way, too near the lake for them, rheumatism, and pneumonia too, perhaps, his wife suggested feebly. I'll risk it, cried Mrs. Valentine voraciously. She had an expansive and affluent effect. She appeared meddlesome, decisive, confident. It seemed to me that so long as I was going to build, I might as well make a complete sweep and out-and-out break. I always had a fancy for the part of town, so I sent a drain around to the different offices. 
She threw a look of passing reference toward her husband, who made a little bow in return. And I had the good luck to get a lot on a valuable plate, one of the last left, and only a block from Lakeshore Drive. Then I went to Mr. Atwater, and he has made my house a perfect little dream. I thought it best to have him to dinner once or twice, and I'm glad I did. He's been so interested all through. There hasn't been the least hitch to speak of, and I expect to get in within a fortnight. This, she went on, turning to Alden with an undiminished vivacity, is really my PPC. Ogden glanced at the husband of the lady, whose use of the first person singular was so frank and continuous. He was a young man with a pleasant and amiable face, and that face was set in a meek little smile from whose forced line the element of a deception was most pitifully lacking. Yes, Abelia, Mrs. Valentine went on. I'm afraid it's goodbye, or nearly the same thing. She took the girl's hand within her own and gave it repeated pats in a rather careless and self-absorbed way. I shall try to see you often, of course, but it will be so far. How nice it would be if you could only come up there and settle down right next door to me. Ogden sighed unconsciously. He had fancied the first ray of a social illumination as falling upon this benighted family but it was only the last faint glow of a speeding twilight after all. Abby withdrew her hand with a quiet dignity. She seemed to put but a moderate value on these protestations. I believe we are satisfied where we are, Fanny, she said in a low and even tone. We have always lived here. We feel more at home in this house than we could anywhere else. All are... All our friends are near us, and this only little blush came in here. And then there's a church and everything. I have heard my sis. I'm told that Northside is very pleasant on some count, but I don't think we are likely ever to change. Change, called her father suddenly. I wouldn't leave anywhere else if you paid me to. What's better than this? So attached, murmured her mother vaguely. Mrs. Valentine continued for some time further to flutter her hands, her clothing, and her conversation, but she was very slow about getting up and fluttering away. She was a neighbor, and her return home was a matter of three minutes. Ogden's return was a matter of nearly an hour, and he left first. He carried away the discontented feeling of a young man whose aim in the direction of a young woman is frustrated by the presence of uncongenial elders and irrelevant outsiders. He had been quite certain of his ability to meet Abby Brainerd after the bank episode without any particular embarrassment or restraint. Certainly he had come to view with the more interest a girl whose hand had lain in his and whose head had rested on his shoulder. There had been no embarrassment in her greeting of him. Her manner had been as straightforward and sensible as it always was. But never mind, he should try again. He was only too certain of soon finding her alone. He took his hour through the clamor and the slime of the public ways. He escaped from these by his talismanic night key and stumbled up thoughtfully to his room. There was a light burning in it and the fireplace showed the faint red of a dying coals. 
a valise open and half intact stood in the middle of the floor and sitting up in the bed was a brower, busy with the last volume of a Monte Cristo. They now occupied a large front room together, which Ogden had to himself a good half of the time. Back are you, said George. When did you get in? About seven. How's Missouri? Weather good, eating bad. Heading all this time? Went to theater. What did you say? Crackling of thorns. Any good? Hot much, one pretty girl. Where have you been? West side, Brainerd. Anybody there? The old people and some friends. Valentine. Valentine. I used to know Valentine. Nice. Quiet fellow. Light complexion. His name was Elphis. No, Adrian. That's the one. Poor fellow. He deserves a better fate. What's the matter with him? His wife owns him. George smiled. Brewer hitched himself on his pillow and put his finger into the book to keep the place. He was a first-rate fellow, good all through and kind of capable. That is, he was a worth a salary of 1800 a year or 2000 He married a girl with 2000 a month. No head bookkeeper, no cashier, no secretary could she let him be after that. No, Johnny must be his own master, except as regarded her. Today, he sorrow hangs on the outskirts of business and picks up a little here and a little there. He has desk room somewhere in the Clifton, I believe. He does the best he can to preserve his self-respect, but I don't see how he can pay the bills and the house rent too. House rent? They are building. I mean, she is. Oh, yeah, cried Brower with a deep meaning. Atwater is doing the house for them, for her. Atwater? Brewer gave a second hitch to the pillow and threw the book to the foot of the bed. Here's another. He's had a trip in the same boat. Why, he isn't married? I guess he is, just about as hard as any man ever was. But he has fought through gallantly. I say that for him. What's his story? Begins in the same way. She was a rich too and a high flyer. He had education and family and his profession and no money. He struggled up for 10 years and now, now he stands on his own legs. His wife has her own money for her clothes and amusements. He saw he had got to society and he struck it hard. He coughed like smoke, but he snatched victory from defeat. It was a great act. Speaking of act, who do you think I saw there in the stage box tonight? But Brennan, just kick that valise out of the way if you want to. All alone. Hope, girl with him. One of the Clifton type writer, the one who used to be down in the lunchroom. Helly Macman? Mm-hmm. End of chapter 10. Recording by Dwarika.